Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Rachel Gresler. And it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, The Faces of a $15 Minimum Wage. We have a great program in store for you today, and I'm delighted to invite our speakers and my co-host, Mike Saltzman, to join me on screen now. Mike is the Managing Director of the Employment Policies Institute, and he has done a lot of great work looking both on the economic analysis side of a $15 minimum wage, as well as the practical side, going around and talking to individuals, workers, restaurant owners who have been impacted by rising minimum wages. Um, and he's even set up a website, The Faces of 15, that documents stories, um, how businesses have been impacted by these minimum wage hikes across the country. Um, it's actually his interactions with all these individuals that has led to our great lineup of guests today, Valerie, Susanna, and Betsy, who Mike will now introduce to us. Great, Rachel, thanks for having me today. And a special thanks to Heritage and the events team for putting this, this important event on uh, as the fight for a $15 minimum wage and the debate over the $15 minimum wage comes to Congress. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be joined by our three panelists today, uh, some of whom I've come to know recently, some of whom I've known for several years, um, all of whom have an incredibly valuable perspective on this issue. Um, we have Betsy Leroy with us, who is the uh, owner of Pizza by Elizabeth's in Greenville, Delaware. Betsy's been in the restaurant industry for 25 years. Uh, and she also uh, has a, a restaurant that is, has been frequented on a number of occasions by President Biden. Uh, and so we, we really appreciate her joining us today. Uh, we're also joined by Valerie Torres. Uh, Valerie is uh, a professional bartender who's been in the restaurant industry for over 20 years. Uh, she has uh, distinguished herself in recent years uh, as part of a group of servers and bartenders in Washington, D.C., uh, that fought in favor of retaining the tipped minimum wage and protecting their tip income. Uh, because of her work on that, she's both been asked by uh, Chairman Phil Mendelson to join the DC Tipped Workers Coordinating Council, uh, a very prestigious position. And then she's also on the board of a group called the Restaurant Workers of America. Uh, so Valerie, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and last we're joined, uh, but certainly not least, uh, Susanna Cotine uh, of Lido Harlem and Bixie Harlem, uh, two restaurants. Uh, if you've ever dined there and dined in Harlem, uh, you, you are hopefully aware of uh, the excellent work that, that she and her team do. Um, Susanna is a, a leader in the industry uh, through a number of uh, uh, venues, both as a board member of the NYC Hospitality Alliance and also as president of the Frederick Douglass Boulevard Alliance. Um, Susanna has been an outspoken advocate for um, the tipped minimum wage and the value of restaurant work. Uh, you may have seen her op-eds in a number of publications, and we're honored that she took the time to join us today. Uh, so I thank all of our panelists. Uh, and with that, we're going to dive right in. Um, President uh, Biden and Democrats want to pass a nationwide $15 minimum wage uh, for all workers, uh, including tipped workers. Uh, I think everyone who's joined us today, uh, and we've got a really robust turnout, can agree that uh, higher wages are a great thing. Um, but we also, uh, we, we want, reality is, is that when uh, there are one size fits all mandates that come down 
uh, from Congress when Congress sets these mandates to tell all employers um, how much they must pay uh, and how they must pay and what, what kind of work is better than others, there are unintended consequences. And so some of those consequences are what we want to explore today. Uh, and we're gonna start with Betsy. Uh, Betsy, you had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend um, that I think became one of the most read pieces on the website. Uh, uh, I think as of this morning, there were over 1,300 comments on the piece. Um, and the, the title of the piece somewhat provocatively was uh, um, Biden tests the adage, the customer is always right. Um, you made clear in the piece that you're a strong supporter of President Biden's. Um, you've served him in your restaurant a number of times. You voted for him. Um, but your message was also pretty clear on the consequences of a $15 minimum wage for your restaurant. Uh, can you take a few minutes and, and explain what that policy would mean for you specifically in Greenville, Delaware? Sure. Um, I am a big supporter of Joe Biden, and I, I still am. Um, but I found it interesting that a lot of the comments that I personally received about that op-ed were things like, well, you got what you paid for, you should never have voted for him in the first place, you're such a fool. Um, I found that interesting because I'm sure we can all agree that you can really believe in what a candidate stands for, but you don't necessarily agree with every single one of their policies. So my, my point was that I am a business owner that loves to pay people more. And if you ask any of my employees, they'll tell you that's true. And when I can do it, I will do it. But this is not the time. This is not the time for a federally mandated minimum wage. And as you just mentioned, the unintended consequences of this are far reaching. For instance, if I have to pay every single entry level worker, which is a person that doesn't really have skills, and that's what an entry level means, you're going to help teach them skills so they can do other things. If I have to pay them $15, then I have to worry about the fact that they're bumping up way too close to people that have, working, have been working for us for three or four years. And then I have to pay them more and on up the chain. If we have to start paying servers who are now making a tipped wage $15, then that makes it just so much worse. And the truth is that this very well-intended act is going to do the opposite. It's going to, just as we're maybe seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, like seeing that there, there's a way out of this and we've been working so hard to keep all of these people employed, we won't be able to anymore because of just seating restrictions and comfort levels, we have the least diners we've ever had. And to have this pay increase at that time, it would just, it would be impossible. So I'd have to lay off people. And that to me at this stage of the game is just heartbreaking. Betsy, can you talk a little bit more? You, you mentioned in your piece that um, tipped workers are not, I think the, the point you made is that your tipped workers are not minimum wage workers. Like there seems to be a little bit of a, uh, a misunderstanding about um, how they're paid. And I think we're getting into that a little later, but I wonder if you just might expand real quick on, on why your tipped workers are, what they're actually earning right now and why a $15 minimum wage for tipped workers would cause so much hardship for you specifically for your restaurant. Right. Well, it would, obviously it would be a lot more that I, you know, the restaurant would have to pay them personally, but if they were to make $15 an hour, they would be taking a huge pay cut because our servers make between 20 and $30 an hour guaranteed. And I know this because when we have a banquet, which when you do a private event, you can't call it a tip if you actually put a service charge on. 
um, you have to call it a fee because a tip is left up to the customer. So when we have a banquet and we want servers to work it, we offer to pay them $25 an hour to work the banquet. And most of them don't want to because it's less money than they would normally make. And I think people out there that aren't in our industry think, oh, this is awful. People should make so much more money than they are. But if you ask the ones that are in the industry that are doing the work, they would tell you, oh, no, they are making plenty of money. Yeah, Valerie, I want to or Betsy, I want to pick up on that point about this tipped minimum wage. And so we have the federal minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. And the proposal is to a little bit more than double that to $15 per hour. But we also have this sub minimum tipped wage. And so if you have a tipped worker, the minimum there is actually only $2.13 per hour. Um, but what the current proposal would do would bring that to $15 per hour. Um, you know, Valerie, you've been active on this issue in DC because they've done something similar, but you were able to work with the council to overturn a measure that eliminated the tip credit. Can you tell us what's at issue with this tip minimum wage and why you, as a tip worker yourself, have led the fight against a $15 minimum for tip workers? Um, yeah, so we, this in 2018, there was an initiative, a ballot initiative that was put, um, on the voting ballot by an outside organization that came into DC um, to increase, to basically to eliminate the tip credit. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of people who don't even actually know or understand how the tip credit works. People even within our own industry don't understand what the tip credit is. I don't, I don't think like even, and I've been in, in the industry for over 20 something years. And um, I didn't even understand it. I just never, I never really thought about what my paycheck said because I knew what I was taking home. I always made a decent amount of money um, with with my tips that whatever my whatever my base wage was was covering my taxes or whatever, and I was taking home the rest. And it was a it was a decent income, you know. For me, I used to I by trade I'm a, a special ed teacher. I taught for a very long time. Um, and um, it was always helpful for me, you know, as a teacher, not making a lot of money. It was helpful for me to be able to supplement my income with working a, a tip wage job in in the restaurants and bars in DC. People don't seem to grasp that a tipped minimum wage, a tipped wage doesn't mean that we get a sub wage, um, which is what people on the opposition like to use as their narrative, we're not getting less than minimum wage. We are always guaranteed the the minimum, the prevailing minimum wage, which at the time in 2018, it was something somewhere around $13 an hour. Um, but we are, if, if we don't make, if as tipped employees, if we don't make the equivalent of the prevailing minimum wage with our tip minimum wage and tips combined over a, a period of, over our pay period, then we are guaranteed to make, by law, the owners are supposed to make up the difference. And um, I mean, in the many, many years that I've been working in the industry, there was not one single time, I think that ever my, any of my employee employers have had to implement the, the, um, the tip credit we've always made well over the minimum wage, which is what keeps most of us into this industry. You know, I mean, I think that it's, it's very, it's, comf it's, a, it's something that we did not, we don't need to be fit. We don't need this system to be fixed. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that 
prevailing across the nation, you know, there everyone there won't be so many people working in the industry if it wasn't working for us. You know. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to hear kind of the message out of your movement, don't take away my hustle, because I think a lot of them workers want to be able to, you know, earn more than the minimum wage that's out there. And Susanna, you've experienced this some in New York City when the tipped minimum went pretty quickly from five dollars to hour to ten dollars per hour how did that impact you and what do you think would be the result if it actually goes up to fifteen dollars per hour um it would be devastating for the industry as a whole um so i knew that you know we were going to be talking about this so forgive me i wrote down some of my thoughts to so that i could try to be clear and concise um so my name is susanna coteen and i've owned lido restaurant in harlem for 10 years in New York City, the tip minimum wage went from $5 an hour to $10 an hour within just a few years, which represents a 100% increase in labor costs. When this happened, we had no choice but to cut back hours and some jobs entirely. Something that is unique to the restaurant industry is that it is one of the few jobs left where you do not have to have a college education and English does not even have to be your first language. To start, you need to be able to multitask, care about your customer and team's experience, and be a hard worker. It is the law, as Valerie mentioned, that if you have uh, the tip credit or the uh, tipped minimum wage, if the tips plus the hourly does not include, does not bring you to the minimum wage, it is the law that the, the business owner must make up the difference. But this ensures that even those that start at entry level will make at least the minimum wage, and usually they make quite a bit more from day one. By increasing the tip minimum wage to $15 an hour, it means that business owners must make the choice of to close or to cut back those entry level jobs. You can ask a server to carry their own food or clear their own table. You cannot ask a busser or a food runner to discuss wine pairings and allergens. The other option is that we have seen creeping into the marketplace is taking away the front of house staff completely. Do any of us crave the airport experience? Do we wish we could go out and order from an iPad or an app? I want to make clear, I love my team. Their livelihoods are a responsibility I take very seriously. There are a few things that give me more joy than hiring someone with no experience and watching them learn, advance, and make more money as they grow. When the argument about getting rid of the tip minimum came to New York City, it was my busters, servers, and bartenders who went with me to testify about how getting rid of the tip minimum would negatively impact their livelihoods. Getting rid of the tip minimum wage means guests stop tip tipping and the servers make far less. This is why in DC and in Maine, when measures were passed to get rid of the tip minimum wage, it was the restaurant workers who fought to keep the tip minimum. Those that argue against the tip minimum say things like, get rid of the sub-minimum wage. This is a false argument, and the general public not knowing how the industry works, of course, will get behind such rhetorics. But just like many other issues, the truth is more complex. In summary, we must retain the tip credit. Without the tip minimum, employees will earn much less. And for small business owners, increasing labor costs to this extent, will force many to drastically cut back jobs or shutter their businesses completely.
Thanks, Susanna. And that's a great point that you make about the entry level work and the importance of that, and also just the opportunity that the hospitality industry provides for people to move up in their income level. And I think that the ladder there and the $15 minimum wage kind of cutting off the bottom rungs of those ladders because it's not allowing people to get their foot in the door to get the experience that enables them to climb that ladder and to in the future have a higher income. And I think that's especially important for us to consider when there are 26 million American adults who don't even have a high school education and there are another 71 million who have a high school degree um, but not anything more than that. And, you know, the reality is uh, college education and six-figure debt is not what everybody needs. There are a lot of other pathways out there for people to have a good income and a fulfilling career, um, but we don't want to cut off the first entryway into that. Absolutely. And, this, you know, there was an article in the New York Times not long ago about how it used to be factory jobs that would bring you to the middle class. Those don't really exist anymore. So this is one of the very few industries left that can afford you a middle-class income without a college education. Rachel, you had, uh, you, you've done some work, and I think this is relevant even to Susanna's situation, in that um, that talks about some of the regional differences in minimum wage. I think we've seen, um, regardless of where policymakers stand on a $15 minimum wage, you've seen some discussion that the minimum wage in Manhattan, uh, New York, is not gonna be the same as the minimum wage in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what those regional variations look like and what the potential drawbacks are of a federal standard that um, perhaps ties the hands of uh, state and local officials to craft something that's more responsive to local conditions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is one of the key points, I think, with minimum wages in general, is that this is really a state and even a local issue because there's so much diversity across the United States um, and oftentimes even within states. You know, I grew up in a very small town in Western New York where the median home price is probably 10% of what the median home price is in New York City. Um, and so there needs to be variance for those local and state lawmakers to be the ones who are setting minimum wages. I mean, the reality here is $15 in DC where they have already local lawmakers have implemented a $15 minimum wage um, that's the median wage in Mississippi. And so you have half of all the people in Mississippi are making $15 per hour or less. If you implement a $15 minimum wage there, that's like telling everybody in DC that the minimum wage is gonna be $36 per hour. That would have huge consequences. And that's gonna be the case, you know, in certain areas of the US is just to have these disproportionate impacts in lower income costs of areas and it's one thing when New York City or LA or these high cost areas implement the $15 minimum wage um, because people can go elsewhere to find work if they've lost it. But it's a different story when you do it nationwide. And I think that one of the other disparities um, that would be drawn to light is the difference between big and small businesses. Um, Susanna mentioned that a lot of people don't want the airport experience. Um, we know that minimum wage hikes can lead companies to automate positions. I think we've probably all gone into a McDonald's and ordered from a kiosk or seen the self-checkouts at the grocery stores. And that's what happens when you have minimum wage hikes. You know, the reality is $15 per hour is equivalent to $36,000 in costs for an employer, for a full-time employee for the year. And some people simply can't produce that much value, especially when they're first starting out. 
um, you know, smaller businesses don't have the capital to invest in machines. And even if they do, as Susanna mentioned, that's not what they're providing. You know, you may walk into a chain restaurant and see a little computer that you're going to now place your order from, and there will be one waiter that's serving everybody to bring the order out. But some people want that fine dining experience. They want to hear from the waiter or the waitress. And so it's just, I think, taking away the opportunities and could crush a lot of small businesses um, while potentially you know, benefiting the bigger businesses because they would have the competitive advantage here. Betsy, in, in your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, you had mentioned, um, I think, what you described as, as Delaware's moderate approach on minimum wage. Um, contrasting it to some of the current proposals. Can, can you describe what the, what the Delaware approach is and why, why you felt like that works better for you? I mean, our minimum wage in Delaware is $9.25 an hour, which I think is close to $2 more than the federal, federally mandated minimum wage. Um, I think it works really well because the people that are coming in at $9.25 an hour are someone like a buzzer, um, that we teach to do things and then some they get tips in our restaurant. We pay the minimum wage and then they get tips. It might be a hostess that we teach how to talk to the customers and what they do. And it might be someone that works in our takeout area. That would be the only people that would come in at, at an entry level like that. And I feel like 925 is a good, you know, a nice sweet spot. It's worked for us for a long time. And I, I think it's really enough for an entry level person who tends to be someone who's very young um, and doesn't have a lot of experience. And, and the tipped minimum wage in Delaware though is, is, is it similar to or closer to the federal level? I think it's, honestly, I pay $3 an hour, which is more, but I think it's 213 or 223. And uh, Valerie, just to, just to go back to you for a minute too, I think on this issue of, um, um, some of the kind of the, the regional differentiation. Um, when you were having this fight in Washington, DC, um, uh, kind of an issue that came up uh, uh, quite often is that um, a lot of DC restaurants were independent. And there were, there were some folks coming in from outside of, of DC who were making arguments about what they thought folks could afford. And I think the argument was, you're either an independently owned franchisee or you were a totally independent restaurant. And that, that these for these restaurants, the tipped workers said um, that the dynamic there worked well for them, that the tipping system worked well for them. Can you talk a little bit more about why um, yourself and so many of your colleagues kind of united in defense of that system and, and, and what that a little bit about what that dynamic looked like? Yeah, I think so. As I said before, you know, we as in 2018 when this ballot initiative had been um, proposed and put in onto the voting ballot, um, the um, the majority of the workers who who sort of banded together, not most of us were un unaware about this whole thing because because it was it was put on this uh, primary ballot. That most people don't vote on, you know, it, historically people don't tend to come out to vote on, on non-presidential um, primary ballot initiative um, timeframes, and uh, so we were sort of caught unaware when this was happening. This this outside organization had been coming in um, and trying to get this this policy passed 
And um, and it's it's it was frustrating for us because we recognized that this outside organization has no idea how the market works here in DC. They were coming from New York and from California, and um, and to try and come and tell workers that they knew more and they knew better than we did. It was um, pretty insulting and it was it was really offensive for us because we were you know I mean. Um, to be told that we are just these these downtrodden, um, sad, you know, um, uneducated, um, this workforce that just doesn't know what is in our best interests. And that um, in particular, that they were trying to couch this, um, this narrative that it was predominantly the, the, the people of color minorities who were allowing ourselves to be taken advantage of and um and that they were here now to come and save us and like help us and and um and win for us and fight for us and i you know as a woman of color i was thoroughly insulted by that you know again i was i've been in 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 the industry on and off for 20 years and um and my friends and colleagues that i've worked with we all felt very strongly that um, that the system that we have in place here in DC works very well. The, the DC industry is upwards of 96% independently owned and operated. That's not the same in other markets in, D, in, in America. You know, I mean, most of these places, most of these um, establishments here in DC are small independently owned restaurants or small independently owned restaurant groups, like two or three restaurants combined. And um, and the way that the model works with the tip credit really allows us to be able to provide the best and like the most enriching experiences for for the, the patrons to come and dine here in DC, especially over the past 10, 15 years, the, the restaurant industry has really boomed and like flourished. And the reason being is because this this system is in place, you know, that, that they are able to our small independently owned restaurants and are able to hire more people so that they can provide a better experience for their um, for their guests. Um, and again, like I said, we were we felt very strongly that there we had these interlopers coming into our city and telling us that they knew better than we did how our system should be working. And when when we as workers came out to fight for ourselves, then their response was to attack us and start calling us like names, uh, accusing us of being um, paid like corporate shills or paid actors, or that we were being threatened by our employers to come out and fight for the system that only benefited the workers, uh, the, the employers and not the workers. And um, I mean, we still fight today and we still say the same things, you know, this is a system that works for us. It might not work in like Wyoming somewhere or in a small little town in West Virginia, but it works here in DC and it and there was not there it it isn't a system that needed to be fixed and they were coming in to fix a problem that didn't need fixing. Um, and you know it was apparent that there was a there's a broader national agenda that that this these some of these organizations had and um, and we really fought hard, you know, I mean, it was for people who understand and know the bar and restaurant industry. I mean, these are like 
a ragtag group of people. Like it's hard to get us to, you know, mobilize like in at 10 o'clock in the morning or to get, you know, people have different schedules. We are, you know, we're out late at night, you know, we're working till three, four o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's difficult to rally people and to get them organized and we were able to do it. And, you know, I mean, to, I, I, I have to say that I'm proud of my, 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 my industry and my community because we really came together and we, you know, we, there was, um, the, the, the vote happened and, um, it passed very narrowly, but we came together and we fought it. We fought with our council and we fought with the council, council members who were on board with us and we testified. I mean, it was a 16 hour hearing. It was the longest hearing in, um, cities in the city's history. We were there till three o'clock in the morning. The gavel came down at 3.21 a.m. And we were still there. There were at least 40 or 50 of us who were still in the galleys and in, in the room during the proceedings. And so that's how much it, that's how important it is to us that, you know, um, we want to support and we want to maintain our, our industry and our community and this, this, this very rich independently owned um, market in in dc where you know there, it's not just change we don't have cha a lot of change in dc and um by by eliminating this tip credit there would be so many unintended consequences and one of those being that these small um establishments wouldn't be able to survive and they'd end up shutting their doors altogether and then where yeah. our jobs get like our jobs are gone so no, i think there's a lot of frustration over kind of the misperception of what this issue is all about and people thinking that owners of companies are just sitting on lush profits and high salaries um, and exploiting their workers. In, in reality, we have you guys here today, and I know you shared some stories with me, and I would just like, you know, Betsy and Susanna to talk about what this means. Like, you have actual relationships with your employees, and I think that's one of the benefits of being a small business, um, and yet, you know, you're the ones that could be most impacted by this. Well, I'd, I'd, lo I'd love to I'd love to jump in on that because, um, you know, as Valerie said, I mean, independently small restaurant owners, I mean, we're in our restaurants every day. And uh, I think this is a huge part of the culture in, in the United States that you don't want all chains, you know, in large companies. But something that um, people do say to the workers is, oh, you're being downtrodden and taken advantage of by the people that own the businesses. If my employees are much more important to me than one particular customer, if my one, my employees are not being treated well, they're not going to stay. They're not going to get to know my customers. They're not going to get to know where they like to sit or, or get to know our menu and be able to describe it. Turnover is a big cost to any company. So taking care of the people that work for you is, is smart business. And, you know, when you're in, you're in your restaurant every day working alongside these people, um, you know, it's not in your best advantage. It would be stupid business to take advantage of them. And, you know, when people outside the industry use these narratives, like they're being taken advantage of, or, um, you know, their tips are being stolen. My people know exactly how much they make and it all goes into their paycheck. And if it didn't, I would lose them immediately. And it, it would be a terrible business model. And, and Susanna, I'm sure you, you shared a lot of this experience as well. But I can remember back in March when, you know, my employees were becoming very stressed about the fact that this pandemic was real, like this was something big. I had a team meeting on a Friday and I talked to them and I said, guys, look, 
we might have less customers, we're gonna make it, we'll work through it. There's no way they're going to close restaurants. So just don't worry. The following Monday, they closed restaurants. And we spent the next two days just cleaning out everything and trying to shut down all the refrigeration. And in that time, I came up with this little note that I fashioned for everyone that said, you cannot be evicted. You cannot have your utilities turned off. Here's my phone number. If you need help, you need to call me. And I immediately, um, you know, put my, tried to get a, a loan, you know, based on my home. And I was so sad that day when I was walking around handing them these notes that I was crying and crying, not for me. I was crying for them because they're like my family. I mean, I've had many employees that have worked for me more than 20 years. And so I'll never forget walking into the kitchen at the very end and this guy that started working for me in 1993, three months after we opened was in there. And he's a big tough guy and he used to be a boxer and you know, everything he ever says to me is like a joke and he's funny. And I walked in and I was crying and I went to hand him the note and he looked at me and just said, it's not your fault. We get it. It's not you. We know you love us. And just going through that was so hard. I can't even tell you just watching that. And for us to just get to this point where maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, it's not that much, but maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If we have to go to a $15 entry level wage, we're just going to have to lay off people. And I just don't want to go through that heartache again because I love them. Those are powerful testimonials, uh, Susanna, Valerie, and, and Betsy. Uh, we appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think it speaks to why we were um, so excited about this panel discussion today. Um, we've had a lot of questions rolling in as, as the debate, as the, the event has gone on, uh, which I think speaks to the, the compelling testimonials we have here. Um, the first one that I just want to, to, to pull out and touch on real quick, and, and, and Rachel, maybe I'll kick it over to you too for a little more context, um, asks about a new report that came out yesterday from the Congressional Budget Office and, and, and our thoughts on that. Um, for those of you who haven't read that yet, the, the, the Congressional Budget Office yesterday released a report that looked at the impact of this proposal on tipped and non-tipped workers and found that a $15 minimum wage nationally would cost about 1.4 million jobs. Um, there's a, another report that came out recently that showed that about half of those jobs lost would be in the hospitality industry. So there would be a pretty significant negative impact from this. Um, and I think something else that we've seen, I think that's been interesting about the debate over a $15 minimum wage and the tipped wage is that there have been very compelling anecdotes too that back up a lot of the empirical data. Uh, in places like San Francisco and Seattle, um, we've had restaurant groups that have closed down multiple locations that have been forced to adopt these kind of no tipping models that employees don't seem to like. Um, there was before the pandemic in San Francisco, there was a meeting that the city's restaurant community had with the board of supervisors out there where they said, you have made the city into a non-viable market for restaurant development. We just, we cannot develop a restaurant in the city anymore because it's just not possible to make money. Um, Rachel, I wonder if you just might talk a little bit. I mean, I know I know people talk a lot about kind of profits as if they're sort of this kind of evil thing and as though business owners should sort of, just sort of be in it for the good. But maybe if you can talk about kind of what I think is a virtuous circle between restaurants being able to make money, being able to provide opportunity, and then how a $15 minimum wage disrupts that. 
Yeah, and you know, it's not just the restaurant industry, it's a lot of other industries out there and it's kind of this cycle that feeds through and one link of the chain impacts the others. And so you just have um, this spiral and I think with a $15 minimum, at least in certain places in the country, it's hard to even know what's gonna happen. And I fear the unintended consequences because we don't have experience um, with these types of wage hikes doubling the minimum wage in a lot of areas um, before. And But I do think the CBO report points in general directions that we know will happen. I think that it'll be worse in some areas of the country. Um, but one of the biggest impacts that I read from that is it's not just job losses, 1.4 million individuals and you know, it's easy to think of statistics, but these are actual people, actual families out there. Um, but they said that these job losses at the beginning, you know, unemployment costs will increase because the workers will be looking for new employment. But a few years down the road, they're going to drop out of the labor force entirely. And that's what I think is really devastating. It's going to be a lot of younger and less experienced workers who are going to be disproportionately impacted. But it also noted that it would cause more people that have a disability to not look for work anymore and to instead turn to the disability insurance program, which is not you know, a good way to live your life. I don't think that it's something that anybody wants to choose. Um, and so I just do fear kind of the unintended long-term consequences of this. And also looking big picture at it, you could take away that the report says we're going to boost the incomes of certain workers, you know, by on net $333 billion. But when you look down at that, it actually says we're going to raise the incomes of some by $509 billion, but then we're going to reduce the incomes of others by $175 billion. To me, that's not a good trade-off. For every $100 that somebody gains, somebody else loses 34, and it's probably because they've lost their entire job. Um, you know, I think that we need to be looking more at the longer-term ramifications of this. And, I, and I'll just reiterate one more time, with the TIP credit, people that, uh, it is the law that everyone still has to make minimum wage. So if there is a $15 minimum wage, as in New York City, and we're able to pay people $10 an hour, it basically helps keep the business alive. And if the tips do not make up the difference, it is the business, it is the business owner's responsibility by law to make up the difference. So just keeping that tip credit in place is what I think is so important. We got another question here, and Valerie, I may, I may send this one to you first, and then Suzanne and Betsy, you may want to weigh in. Um, in, in the restaurant, there are these terms of art, front of house and back of the house, front of house referring to typically to servers, bartenders, hosts, and back of house referring to uh, uh, cooks and others in the kitchen. Um, one dynamic that has come up in my conversations, uh, especially with restaurant operators in San Francisco, is concerns that they have about the lack of tip credit and the impact it has on the back of the house. Uh, I had one operator tell me, for instance, that uh, he had tipped workers taking home north of $300 on a really good Friday or Saturday night, but because he had to pay such a high base wage that there was a negative impact on the back of the house because he had less money left over to fund raises elsewhere. Um, Valerie, I know in D.C. during the fight over Initiative 77, there was kind of an interesting alliance between front of house and back of the house. Can you talk a little bit about that and how... Um, kind of the whole restaurant, uh, the whole restaurant came together uh, in, in your fight on the tip credit? 
Yeah, um, so I think to what you're saying, um, I think that there were a lot of people from the in, in, in DC from the back of the house who really recognized that increasing that front of the house labor cost was going to take away from them because you can't just magically, you know, um, make money appear, you know, the money's going to come from somewhere. It's going to come. You can't, there's only so much that you can raise your prices before you price yourself out of the market altogether, before people just don't want to spend that much money. So the money has to come from somewhere. So if you're increasing the labor costs from three something an hour to $15 an hour in such a short span, then that money has to come from somewhere. And a lot of the back of the house um, workers here in DC recognize that and understood that 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 would be that that would be one of those unintended consequences of increasing the minimum wage or, or I mean of eliminating the the tip credit is that you know there that money that could potentially be going to them and increasing their wages giving them raises that would now be their their wages now would become stagnant and uh, um, and that's why we all came together. I mean, it wasn't just even just work uh, the front of the house and back of the house. It was all of us, you know, in in addition to working together with owners, because owners and operators, because we all collectively as an industry understood the impacts that it would have on on our industry and on the jobs and on wages for everyone. You know, I mean, to say that front of house workers are only interested in ourselves, you know, that we were, you know, we're making good money and like, we don't care about the back of the house and we should be, you know, they're not making any money and we should be concerned for them. Um, we are concerned for them. We were concerned that uh, in limit, increase that drastic increase in labor costs was gonna, the people who were most vulnerable, like the, the dishwashers, the front, the line cooks, the food prep, they were going to be the first ones to either get a, a pay cut or just lose their jobs altogether. And that's not, you know, you can't have a viable establishment without those positions in place. We're bumping up against the, uh, the 45 time. I want to, I want to just go back to, to, to Betsy real quick. Um, Betsy, are there any, uh, as you think about your op-ed, the reaction of the op-ed, and even your relationship uh, uh, with the president as a, as a guest of yours, and I know someone you look up to a lot, um, what, what is your closing message, especially for um, those in Congress, those who are kind of in the middle, who are really wrestling with this issue right now, some of them have real reservations about it. What would your closing message be to, to people who are considering about um, $15 minimum wage and elimination of the tip wage? Well, I think my message would be that um, I am a Democrat and um, I, you know, generally vote that way. I vote for the, the person, not the party. But this, at this time in our country, to do this to restaurants and other small businesses in general, um, it's just like a, a knife in the heart to us. It's just not the time. And although I'm sure that everyone of us that's on this panel agrees that we would love to pay people more, we have no problem with that. It's not like we want to keep all the money and not give it to them. It's that we don't have enough money to even pay them now. You know, we're just scraping by. So, yes, would we love to pay people more? Absolutely. Can we do it now? No. That's really it. And Susanna, did you have any last message that you wanted to give? I mean, I guess I just think that this is a this is an issue that people outside of the industry, again, you hear sub minimum wage and you think people are making less than minimum wage. 
that's illegal. And the restaurant industry is is such a job creator, and I think we get taken for granted. I mean, it's not just the servers and the chefs and the delivery people, it's the farmers and the food and beverage distributors and the drivers. And this is a huge part of our culture. And, you know, allowing us to have the tip credit helps us keep the doors open. And it's it's between that and like laying everybody off and changing the model or closing completely. Yeah, and, and I like how you're just highlighting the interconnected nature of all this. And I'll have a report out um, within a week or so, I was examining the costs um, for the childcare industry of a $15 minimum wage because the reality there is childcare is already very expensive for the families who are paying for it, and yet childcare workers and those who are the providers themselves are not taking home high wages. And you know, I've estimated that this would increase the cost of childcare by 20% on average across the U.S. And we're talking about thousands of dollars more per year per family. And so it just, you know, you increase the cost of all labor and it affects so many different areas um, of the economy. So keeping those things in mind, but I, we've had a great panel today. Thank you so much for taking your time um, out of your busy restaurant schedules to join us. And I'd like to thank our um, participants, also our audience for joining us for this important conversation. You know, if you work on the Hill at a think tank, or if you have questions, please just contact me from the information that's listed on the screen here. And I would love to continue this conversation. Um, immediately following the event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you will complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. Um, to see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. And again, thank you and have a great day.